Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now on a Friday, as we reset for November, the end of this year, and as John has mentioned, some of the window gazing into 2022, it's time that you reset. Christian Mueller Glissman at Goldman Sachs is hugely qualified to talk about the linkage of the dynamics of the market into your portfolios, retail and institutional, around the foundation back to 1926 of the 6040 portfolio. Christian, thank you so much for joining and uh, your work with the CFA Institute, of which I'm a member as well. How dead is the dead 60-40 portfolio? Yeah, listen, it, it always is a bit aggressive to say that you have the dead or death of, of kind of one of the most basic and, and well-known investment strategies. I think there's always going to be some benefit to be balanced, no? but I think you have a particularly poor kind of starting point for these type of portfolios <laughs> from two perspectives. No, I mean, first of all, everything is expensive. We know that. And equities and bonds are expensive at the same time. That was actually the same a few years ago. And still, these portfolios continued performing really well. But what's new? is um, how we are starting the cycle. No, the cycle is starting with more inflation and flatter yield curves. And, and that just means that what bonds can offer you in the portfolio is, is even more limited, both in terms of returns right. and, and, and with regards to, to, to risk reduction. One of the other determinants here is diversification, which over my uh, span, I've seen, for example, 300 stocks down to Fidelity 50 years, what Sequoia did years ago. Tell us about your view on the new diversification if bonds are so unattractive. Do I own Apple, Amazon, and seven other stocks? Listen, it's exactly a good point you make there. I think you need to look for older sources of diversification than, than just what equities and bonds can offer you. I actually think there's going to be much more potential for regional diversification. In the last 20, 30 years, all the academic evidence is showing that there's no benefit of, of, of having a global portfolio. If anything, the best thing was to have all your money just in the US equity market. But now that we introduce inflation risk, inflation volatility, policy uncertainty, um, which we haven't had in the last 20, 30 years, and possibly much more macro volatility, desynchronized cycles, what we could get is, is more diversification across the markets and, and also across styles, across sectors, and, 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 and it'd be, the leadership is much, much less narrow. So to some extent, you should not just be in the winners of the last cycle um, and run a really concentrated portfolio. You need to branch out a bit. You need, need to diversify. And obviously, the other key area, which we all know um, and has already done really well, which will be more important in the portfolio is real assets. If it's commodities or other sources of, 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 of kind of real cash flows, I think that that will also feature more heavily in the coming cycle. Is cash better than developed market bonds right now? Listen, this is the most interesting discussion, in my opinion, which is new. I think we all know that equities look better than bonds um, in the long run on most models which you can come up with. But the more interesting discussion is really bonds versus cash. People are forgetting, but bonds have for very prolonged periods of time lost you money versus cash. Actually, the hit ratio 
of cash outperforming bonds over a 10-year rolling period is nearly 40%. So it's nearly 50-50 that you um, essentially do better with cash than with bonds based on the last 100 years. We obviously have been in the biggest bond bull market on record, so, so we kind of feel that's quite unusual. But if you look back in history, there were plenty of periods. And one of the most important indicators of how bonds might do versus cash is the steepness of the yield curve. And, and the steepness of the yield curve is half of what we normally get after a recession, exactly to some of the comments we had earlier, because there's so little optimism about the duration and the longevity of, of the cycle and how much central banks can hike. That means you have less buffer and you have less return potential for bonds versus cash. So I think definitely cash looks better versus bonds in the coming cycle than, than what we've experienced in recent years. How about inflation? Doesn't that sort of erode the idea because your buying power is steadily going away with no coupon? Yeah, I mean, it's always like, do you do you want to lose money fast or slow? No, I think the, the, the big problem is uh, with cash, uh, uh, you're losing money very slowly, um, whereas with bonds, you obviously have other drivers. And, and we all know that real yields have moved to incredibly <clears throat> low levels. And this really weird relationship you currently have where inflation expectations go higher and higher and higher, but the real yields, they yeah. don't follow. And we know that might change. And then you have some losses and bonds. Uh, Christian, one quick question. You can't have a Mueller-Glissman article without an Ibbotson chart. You trot out the Roger Ibbotson chart like clockwork here, the long-term log performance of the equity market. And the great unspoken fear is another 1970s, the dismal 70s, the Carter malaise, the flatness of equity return. What's the probability of that? Listen, I think it's definitely higher post-COVID and post the crisis than before, because we obviously have now this new inflation uncertainty. And inflation is a very, I always say, it's a very autocorrelated animal. Once you set it loose, I think it, it does create more uncertainty. It has spillover effects. And, and, and I think as a result of that, the probability has gone up. We still would argue that like a 70 stagflation, don't forget there was 10% annualized inflation over a decade. I mean, that is quite aggressive. And you also have to consider at the time, like the type of macro backdrop, both with regards to demand, supply disruptions, which were related to OPEC embargo, Iranian air revolution. There were things going on which seem much more extreme than what we're dealing with. I think stagflationary momentum is something we need to fear next week, uh, not, not next week, next year, um, um, where I think we know that growth will come down, inflation might remain sticky, and we get a bit of monetary policy normalization and 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 potentially a bit of a catch-up for monetary policy. And that can be a bit harmful for markets. But I, I think the 70s stagflation to us is still a pretty extreme event, which, which I would still put more into the tail risk um, yeah. bucket, not the base case. Christian, that was a clinic. It's good to catch up, sir. Send our best to Peter Oppenheimer as well. Christian Miller-Glissman there of Goldman Sachs. Thank you, buddy. It's good to see you. One stock I want to look at in the pre-market, Tom, I know you want a brief comment on this too. J&J &J yeah. to split into two companies. That coming from the company this morning. The stock positive by about 4%, just short of 170 now, Tom, at 169.62. It is not the J&J &J those older perceive. What's remarkable here in this data, wonderful in the Bloomberg. I can't say enough about the DES screen to get a snapshot of a company that we think we know that we don't know. John, household, uh, baby oil, the powder, all the rest of it, it's 
of the company. It is amazing how they have deconsumered with their pharmaceutical and medical devices growth over the last 20 years. And Tom, this company's still an absolute beast. What are we looking at? 400, 500 billion dollar market cap? Yeah, it, it's going to take 18 it, to 24 months to split it up. I know we've got an important conversation here, John, but I, I just can't say enough about how the margins fall to net income is hugely profitable. That important conversation, Tom, starts now with Jean Bavan, the head of the Investment Institute at BlackRock. Jean, your words, what ultimately matters is not the timing of liftoff on policy rates, but the cumulative response. Jean, can you build on that for us? Yeah, I mean, we all focus on the, when exactly the liftoff is going to happen. And as you mentioned, like some are being brought uh, pretty aggressively into 2022 now. I would push back on, uh, you know, three hikes in 2022 seems like extremely aggressive to us. Um, but we might see uh, the beginning of the hiking cycle in 2022. But ultimately, uh, what's going to matter, uh, what is very unusual in this cycle, is that the cumulative response to this kind of uh, inflation uh, that we haven't seen in 30 years uh, will be much more muted than historically. And that's going to be uh, meaning that real rates, uh, in our view, are, are uh, going to remain very low uh, for a sustained amount of time. And that's a, that's a different true to risk asset. I think that's a much more constructive backdrop that's sustained. And, um, and that's where there is a risk of confusion, uh, we think. So hashtag confusion that for us is a, is a starting point of conversation. What does the fiscal impulse of this natural disaster, this pandemic, what does it do to the geometry that any given central bank faces? It's not in the textbooks, is it? It's not in the textbooks. Uh, and, uh, you know, we call this whole kind of complex, well, we've talked about a policy revolution over the last uh, few years, this this complex of uh, both monetary policy and fiscal policy moving very aggressively. But that leaves us at a place now where, um, you know, we, we kind of forget about this, but the, the debt levels are, are very high. Uh, not long ago, um, you know, the narrative in the U.S. was, um, you know, uh, the debt servicing costs are so low, uh, like at record levels are low, that we can afford to uh, increase the debt uh, very significantly, which we've done. Um, the flip side of this, which we'll see soon, is that um, it won't take much in terms of rate increase to change this story completely on its head. Um, you know, we can have the 10-year back at 2.5%, and at that point, uh, debt servicing costs in the U.S. will be back to their um, to their historical level, uh, throwing a completely out the window. Uh, you know, the argument that Summers and Blanchard were making uh, just a, a couple of years ago. So, point being, to your point, uh, Tom, it's um, it's not textbook, and it's going to be a constraint on how quickly rates uh, can go up. Jean, I find this fascinating, the idea here that central bankers and, frankly, policymakers in general don't want to see rates go up too high because the economy is no longer able to withstand it because of what you're just talking about. Does that mean that the more volatile asset class is perhaps short-term yields that have very little room to maneuver but could potentially be offset uh, dramatically by what my people might speculate about policy changes, whereas stocks continue to be supported no matter what by the negative real yields that you see persisting? Yeah, it's certainly consistent with what we've seen over the last uh, month uh, or two, uh, right? I mean, uh, lots of swings around the repricing of near-term policy, and yet uh, the backdrop has been, uh, you know, continues to be constructive uh, more broadly for risk assets. So I think that would be consistent with, uh, you know, uh, rates might be lifting up at a different point in time, but there's a conviction that overall uh, this is going to be a muted the hiking cycle. Uh, and if it were not, I think we've seen some example of that, then markets are quick to price some kind of policy mistakes or quick reversals of policy, uh, which speaks to this environment we're talking about. It's going to be difficult to raise rates or another way to put it is like any rate rise um, right. will have a, a bigger impact. 
Jean Bovin, I'm honored to do this with your work at Princeton. As you know, the great Olivier Blanchard of France, of MIT, and of the International Monetary Fund. Professor Blanchard is out with a blistering note this morning in the Peterson Institute saying, forget about Team Temporary, forget about Team Gloom. John mentions Dr. Alarian. He says we need to get used to the consequences of higher inflation. What are the consequences of a sustained higher Higher inflation, as Olivier Blanchard mentions. Well, I mean, it feeds through uh, the entire economy. So, uh, you know, uh, there will be adjustment um, through, uh, you know, obviously prices, but that means also uh, we'll see some uh, wage dynamics that uh, nominal wage dynamic that will be different. And uh, eventually, you know, um, workers will want to keep up with this inflation. Uh, it's going to change the bargaining kind of uh, situation. And uh, I think we'll see wages catching up. Um, we haven't seen, um, I think, I don't know, I haven't read yet uh, Olivier's piece, but uh, I would suspect like one of the key points is for the last 20 years where, you know, inflation was missing in action. And even if we are um, in a 2.5% world uh, going back, um, you know, after some, some spikes, it's going to feel different uh, for that reason. And the other big point is... Um, how will people uh, react in terms of the expectation of inflation? And I don't think people, uh, we have collectively a good handle. There's no good models of inflation expectations. Uh, and so that's a big unknown, I guess, that um, we'll need to track and, and live with now. John, always great to get your thoughts, sir. As always, fantastic. John Bavan there of BlackRock. Right now, an important essay by Seema Shah. She's senior global investment strategist, the principal group. And Seema, I want to drill right into what we see on emerging markets. You are bold into the end of the year. You are bold into the beginning of the year and say you may not be on board with EM, but the beleaguered EM has your attention. Tell me about the when of diving into EM. What do you need to see to generate a belief in emerging markets? Hi, Tom. So I think the key thing is China, right? Um, we look at the fundamentals of emerging markets. We feel that there's a lot of promising movement with regards to vaccines, a kind of a shift away from zero COVID in a number of countries. Um, and, and also, you know, compared to a lot of the other parts of emerging markets, Latin, Eastern Europe, um, emerging Asia, kind of, you know, not having as, as significant rate hikes. But really, the catch-all is China. You know, we need to see some kind of movement there with regards to stimulus potentially a bottoming of growth, maybe a pullback in a bit of regulation. And the problem here is, is that we don't know when that will happen. You know, we think there is a pain threshold, but unfortunately we're not able, I don't think anyone's able to call that timing. So the only thing that we can do here is stay ready on the sidelines waiting to, to increase that exposure because valuations have become more attractive, but we just need China to play ball. Seema, what's your read at the moment on how far down the road we are in these tightening cycles in places like Brazil, like Mexico? Are we close to done yet? I think we're definitely getting there, right? So, you know, Russia, we're almost at the end. Brazil, I think that we're, they're going to move quickly. They're going to move a lot. And then we should kind of normalise um, by middle of next year. So I think 2022, and the fun thing is, is you know, they're going to be finished with their rate hikes. They're going to have gone to pre-pandemic levels um, before the Fed even gets going. So we have to take that into consideration. So I do think that as we get into 2022, developed markets start really moving faster towards their normalisation process that actually emerging markets start to look a little bit more attractive at that point. Okay, so they look more attractive. However, there is the issue of the dollar. What happens if the Federal Reserve does hike twice or even three times in the next 18 months? How much does that potentially uh, crimp the bet that you're making? 
Yeah, you know, we think that for the US, um, actually, we're not expecting kind of very, very early hikes. We think it's going to be right till the end of next year that they're going to look through a lot of that inflation tension um, and wait there. And then from there on, actually have quite a shallow upper trajectory. We think, you know, we look at the debt markets, we look at, you know, the fact that the growth profile is on a slowdown and we don't see very significant moves. So I think there is upward movement on the dollar, but I don't think it's going to be to a point that it starts to strangle emerging markets. Meanwhile, um, and actually, the other thing is, is that, you know, I know a lot of investors have been really concerned about how do emerging markets deal with Fed tapering. And at the same time, the investors who are looking at emerging markets and thinking, right, well, there's a lot, a, a far more credible monetary policy framework, more credible on the fiscal side um, across a number of countries. And I think that actually this is a slightly more stable emerging markets than what we've been used to in previous years. So this is a really constructive outlook. Why then are you seeing potential wobbles in the U.S. equity markets, considering that there is this sort of reflation trade in a constructive narrative around to the rest of the world? Well, so for, even for the United States, look, we, we're looking at a growth slowdown, but we're still expecting growth to be um, around trend, if not above trend. Right? So this isn't a very, very negative um, outlook at all. There, there are going to be pressures on profits. We need to keep a very, very close eye on that. But when we look at earnings, of, uh, the earnings season just gone, I think that equity markets have generally been really encouraged by signs that there is continued strong demand. So, you know, we are expecting uh, lower returns through 2022 in a number of markets, including Europe, including the US. But are we looking at negative returns? Absolutely not. What's the correlation here to weak dollar? Basically, EM investors are standing around waiting for a weak dollar. Is that all this is about? No, I think emerging market investors are really watching to see what happens with China. And, we, we, you know, it's, it's too big to ignore. It has to be something that is is working for them. Um, you know, but having said that, there's pockets within emerging markets away from the EM Asia, such as in Latin America, where valuations are starting to look more attractive. I think it's just being ready for that opportunity. Don't get too underweight in your portfolios. Be neutral and be ready to increase that exposure when the right time comes, when China does start to pull back a little bit from um, from a lot of the, the various regulations, tightening constraints that they've started to introduce. Seema, thank you, as always. Great to catch you up. Seema Shah there for Principal Global Investors on emerging markets right now. Right now, let's go to George Goncalves. This is really important. He's head of the U.S. macro strategy at MUFG, and he writes one of the most interesting, and George, I love saying this to you, twisted notes on Wall Street, and that it's very thoughtful paragraph to paragraph about what the unseen is out there. George, I love what you say about the lack of depth in the three-month market. The gloom crew is worried about liquidity. They're worried about savings okay. dynamics and you're focused on the lack of depth in treasuries. What do you mean? Well, I mean, look, 2021 definitely is going to go down as a year that the bond market could not catch a break. Um, and we started off, you know, as John was pointing out, with the two-tenths curve steepening, you know, really kind of encouraged further steepeners. Those trades got unwound. Then during the month of October, around <laughs> all the central bank kind of interventions, which they obviously didn't really deliver hawkish messages or hikes from the BOE's point of view, really tripped up all these short-term um, rates markets. And then now, as we head into year-end, you know, where liquidity is super precious, you know, we're seeing some forms of cracks forming. I mean, it's too early to say, but if you look at like you know, the government liquidity index on the Bloomberg terminal, 
you compare against Move, I think there was a good article by someone on, on the Bloomberg team that put it out there. But there is you know, some concerns, I mean, both in the bond market, but I think that if this were to persist, I think other markets would care as well. I mean, the bond market is the first to feel these things out. Right. And if you look at the, you know, the bond market has you know, more than one, one curve going on right now. Well, let's go there. I got, I got three ways to go here, folks. And what Mr. Goncalves mentions there about the bond market is out front, I firmly believe in. I've seen it time and time and time again. What is the bond market telling the equity market in six months? Well, I mean, right now, because CPI, I think, you know, finally is a wake-up call, because the fact that it continues to stay persistently high, it lasts, this reading is the, the straw that broke the camel's back on the long end of the curve. And, and we saw that in the you know, really poor auctions of the 30-year. Um, but again, even then, you know, it's good to kind of get around the idea that we're going to have you know, positive, strong growth next year and high inflation. But if inflation persists at this level, I think other markets are going to start to care because it could, you know, fast forward, you know, Fed action. And, like, and even if it's just two hikes and maybe a faster taper, you know, markets broadly are not ready for that. George, let's have therapy Friday. Why are bond traders so gloomy? Uh, because we're realistic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I ask this seriously because whenever I read notes, and frankly, I, I gravitate to the bond market, as many people uh, would acknowledge for a reason, there have been a lot of prognostications about cracks forming. You really talked about the idea that as a tapering starts to accelerate, it will reveal some of the significant cracks in markets. What is the bond market so worried about that will happen as the Fed starts to more meaningfully pull back? Who's going to warehouse all this risk? I mean, it comes down to just that. We've been, we saw massive QE to expect it to kind of just go away, you know, quietly into the night. That to me is wishful thinking. I think the bond market knows that. And so you're seeing, you know, multiple bond markets, you know, forming around a central core of the treasury market. The treasury market is made up of on the run benchmark treasuries, which everyone looks at every day. And then there is the, you know, the, the bonds that trade around it, these off-the-run treasuries, which start to get less liquid, especially this time of the year and with the Fed stepping back. George, in some ways, are stocks and bonds switching profiles where you start to see bonds becoming the more volatile asset class and sort of equities following along with this presumption that central bankers will step in and stem declines, create a, a backdrop where Tina still will exist? I mean, that really comes down to, which we, I think we discussed in other episodes, like, it comes down to the credit market, which is kind of in the middle of the two, right? So if you look at just once rate vol starts to infect credit volatility, and then I think then equities will matter. But until that happens, I mean, there's so much money chasing yield. And so as long as that dynamic's still right. there, uh, then credit should, you know, hang in there and then equity should as well. But I mean, I think ultimately if the bond market gets a little bit uh, illiquid, it's going to hurt others. Is the so much money chasing yield a 2006 equivalent? That's actually a great point. Because if you look at like um, the way the like so overall vol and, the, and and how like the last year of that of that period of 06 when you know we got a lot of complacency in the markets back then we're like hey you know things are going to be super smooth forever we're going to have this positive kind of reinforcing mechanism uh, on growth and it didn't last until 2007 2008. I don't think we have to have a repeat of that per se, but you know we've we've been uh, on the back of central banks' largesse and fiscal supply and uh, fiscal stimulus. And now that's going away. And so I think, yeah, I think that you know, probably 2021 is like the 06 period. Mm -hmm. uh, probably George, a delicate question. But with MUFJ's Japanese heritage and Japanese reality, what are the lessons from Japan the fixed income market in the West needs to understand right now? Uh, that, you know, eventually, if you don't get the growth, you know, the deflation always wins.
Going forward, what are you looking at in terms of the trigger point for the long end? You said that this was a wake-up call, the CPI print, yet the wake-up call seems relatively muted when you take a look at the flattening yield curve that John was talking about. What do you expect to happen here as the wake-up call becomes more widely accepted? So, I mean, look, in general, we'll see uh, more curve volatility relative to specific points on the curve. So if the curves continue to kind of move in the erratic behaviors, I mean, it's been in a flattening trend, so it's hard to kind of distinguish that, but the realized vol has been pretty high in curves. And so just looking at curve volatility is going to be a big deal. Um, I, I mean, I do think that, you know, like, look, uh, on the grand scheme of things, we all know rates are low, but I mean, it's, it's, it's really the starting points that matter. Uh, so if we start to move well back above 160 on the 10-year, back above 2% in a meaningful way above the, on the 30-year, that's when I think you know we'll start to see some concerns about people that got long basically at the lows in rates when they knew growth was strong and, and inflation was super high. Right? And if it keeps going, then that's when I think you have less interest and further tails and things like that that, we, that I think you guys cover well on Bloomberg. Hey, George, we appreciate that. Thanks for the kind word. You're welcome back anytime. George Concarvis there of MUFG on this bond market. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.